morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm uh, happy to help out. Patrick sent me a text message uh, last weekend and asked if I would be willing to be on standby as he was out of town and John was sick. And I agreed. And uh, shortly after I agreed, he said, "Okay, good. Uh, Count on being plan on being there. So I don't know if that was his strategy. Uh, It was effective. But I just wanted you to know, in case Patrick ever asks you to be on standby for something, just plan on being there. But I'm happy to be here. Um, Our scripture passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 8. It's on the screen there uh, for you, or you can turn in your Bibles or on your devices. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Listen carefully now as I read. This is God's word. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary." For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? Who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word to us this morning. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Earlier this year, back in May, May 14th, an 18-year-old gunman opened fire at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. He live-streamed the attack on social media from a camera that was mounted to his body armor. The teen was described self-described as an ethno-nationalist who had outlined his plan for violence in a 180-page racist manifesto. He told authorities that he drove more than three hours from his home in Conklin in order to target shoppers in a predominantly black neighborhood. And witnesses say he shouted racial slurs during the attack. He shot 13 people, and the 10 who died were all African-American. And then, just 10 days later, another 18-year-old gunman opened fire outside of an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. After five minutes, the teen entered the building through an unlocked side entrance door, and for more than an hour, he shut himself inside two adjoining classrooms where he killed 19 school children and two teachers before he was shot by Border Patrol agents. It was the third deadliest shooting in our nation's history and the deadliest in Texas. 
And I could go on all morning giving example after example of this kind of evil and injustice in the world. I could point to recent examples like these of violence and hate. Or I could point to ancient examples like the very first murder in human history, which is recorded in only the fourth chapter of the very first book of the Bible. This isn't a sermon about racism. It's not a sermon about gun violence. This is actually a sermon about hope. So why begin a sermon about hope by highlighting such horrific evil? Well, it's precisely because of these things, because of the unjust suffering that we see in the world, that we are susceptible to hopelessness. And Jesus knows that about us. Jesus knows that we're susceptible to hopelessness, which is why he told this story. In today's reading, Jesus tells a story. He tells a story about a widow. And as you all know, a widow is a woman whose husband has died. Perhaps there's a widow among us this morning. And in the Bible, widows are often listed along with the fatherless and the orphaned as some of society's most vulnerable members. Because in the ancient world, you see, widows, particularly widows without children, had no inheritance rights and were often in need of life's most basic necessities. They frequently relied on public charity in order to survive. And God's concern for the widow, his heart for the widow, can be found throughout the Old Testament. There were laws that were given to make special provision for widows in order to protect them from evil people. For example, there was a a law that prohibited a widow's clothing from being used as security for a loan. At harvest time, widows were allowed to gather up the leftover produce from the fields. They were also eligible for financial assistance from the third-year tithe. And nevertheless, even with all these provisions that God had given, widows were often exploited and treated harshly. And God promised terrible punishment for those who mistreated them. Psalm 68.5 calls God the protector of widows. Deuteronomy 10.18 says that God executes justice for the widow, and he gives her food and clothing. Jesus, too, was sensitive to the needs of widowhood. For example, he restored the life of the widow's only son in Luke chapter 7. And here today he tells a story of a widow who has been mistreated. And the widow in Jesus' story has no choice but to take her case to court. But there's a problem, you see. The problem is that the judge is crooked. It says more than once that he doesn't fear God, which means he doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about what's right and wrong. If you've ever seen a depiction of Lady Justice, you've likely noticed that she's often wearing a blindfold. Her blindfold represents impartiality, which means that true justice is not influenced by wealth or power or status. But that's not true for this judge. The judge in Jesus' story is influenced by wealth and power and status, which is why he has no interest in taking a widow's case. Because as a widow, she has no status. She has no power. She has no wealth. And so verse 4 says, the judge, 
refused to give her justice. Undeterred by this judge's coldness and his questionable character, the widow goes to him again and again and again. That's the verb there. She keeps coming to him until she finally wore him out. This woman is driving me crazy with these constant requests, he says to himself. Why won't she just go away and leave me alone? If I don't do something soon, my reputation is going to be ruined. And that's what this judge means when he says that she will eventually wear him out, or as it says in the ESV, beat him down. It didn't mean the judge thought that this sweet little widow would resort to physical violence. The phrase, beat me down, is an idiom that means she's going to give me a black eye. She's going to bruise my face. In other words, she's going to tarnish my appearance. If she doesn't stop soon, she's going to make me look bad. You see, he doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about this woman, about what she's been through, about her suffering. He cares only about himself. And Jesus says, look at this guy. Look at this guy. If this wicked judge who only cares about himself, if he, of all people, will ensure justice for someone he despises, how much more will God? the perfectly righteous judge, how much more will he ensure justice for everyone he he dearly loves? And the answer is, of course he will. Of course God will one day make everything right. So, hold on to hope. When you are overwhelmed by the amount of evil and injustice in the world, don't give in to hopelessness. And that's what Jesus is addressing in this parable. The whole reason that Jesus told this story is because we are susceptible to hopelessness in the face of perpetual suffering. Whether we experience that own, that suffering in our own lives or whether we merely observe it in the lives of of people around us or in the world at large. So how do we know if we've given up hope? What's the fruit of hopelessness that Jesus identifies in the story? I don't know if he caught it. It's prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is a sign that you are giving up hope. Hopelessness leads Prayerlessness. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, Jesus makes this connection between prayer and hope. He says this. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart or give up hope. Prayer is an indication that you haven't lost heart. You haven't given up hope. My family is here with me this morning, all except for one member of our family, Murray, our golden retriever. (laughs) Murray is six years old in people years, and he's a good boy. Uh, You can put a treat 
in front of him and he won't eat the tree until you tell him it's okay to eat it. He's gentle. You can put that very same treat in your mouth and he will take it out of your mouth so gently that his whiskers will barely touch your lips. And he's so sweet, he greets everyone individually when they wake up in the morning, morning and come out of their rooms. And we love Murray. We love him a lot. He's a part of our family. But we wouldn't have Murray if it wasn't for my youngest child, our daughter Molly. You see, when Molly was young, maybe three or four years old, Molly started asking for a dog. But I refused. It's not because I don't like dogs. It's not because I'm mean. I am mean, but that's not why I said no. I said no because, as you all know, pets are an inconvenience. They just are. We used to take our kids on spontaneous trips to Disney World when they were little, and I knew if we had a dog, there would be no more spontaneous trips. Pets make vacationing difficult. So now that we find ourselves making plans, arranging our, our plans around our family's, uh, extended family's calendar or our neighbor's schedule or paying someone to dog sit. And I knew that all that would happen, and that's why I kept saying no. But Molly persisted. She asked me for a dog every single day. That is no exaggeration. It was every single day. Every night when she said her prayers, Molly would ask God for a dog within earshot of me. She'd go to the library and check out books about dogs and bring them home and read them to me. She drew pictures for me of dogs. And I tried. I bought her stuffed animals. I bought her... I even bought her a toy dog that walked and barked, but she wasn't satisfied. She kept on asking. And finally, after a couple of years of asking, Molly wore me down. And now we have Murray. Not only, be, uh, but only because Molly never gave up hope of getting a dog. And because she never gave up hope, she kept on asking. And that's essentially what prayer is. Pray is an old English word that means to ask. Prayer is asking God for something. It could be asking God for our daily bread. It could be asking God to forgive our debts as we prayed this morning or asking God to hallow his name. But when you give up hope, you give up asking. You stop praying Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because it just doesn't seem like his will is ever done. And it just doesn't seem like his kingdom will ever come. And so you stop asking. And in that way, prayerlessness is like functional atheism. I know probably most of you wouldn't consider yourself an atheist. You're here in church on a Sunday morning. But before you know it, you can start acting like an atheist. Atheists don't talk to God, of course, because they don't believe that God exists. But when you stop praying because you've given up hope that God is there or that God is good or that God cares 
or that God is able or willing to act, you start acting like the God of the Bible doesn't exist. You start acting like an atheist. Again, I know that most of you in here this morning are not atheists. That's why you're here. But some of you have been functioning like an atheist because you've given up hope. Perhaps you're here this morning and uh, you actually are an atheist. Maybe you're here, you don't believe in the existence of God or at least the God of the Bible. You're here with a friend or spouse and you have wondered, how could there be a good and powerful God if there is so much pointless evil in the world? Well, first, let me say I'm glad you're here. You're in the right place. But next, let me say this to you. You're not alone. For many people, the problem of evil is the biggest obstacle to faith in God. All of us have friends or family members who've raised this objection at one time or another. In fact, I bet that there are many Christians here this morning who have personally struggled with doubt because of what appears to be pointless evil. But let me remind all of us, just because we don't see a point in some evil doesn't mean that it's pointless. We're all familiar with the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, a man despised by his own brothers, thrown into a pit and left to die. He was sold into slavery. He spent years in bondage and misery, which I'm sure in the middle of it seemed like pointless evil. And yet Joseph was refined by those trials. He eventually became second in command of all of Egypt. And at a time of a great famine, he rescued his family and countless lives around the world. But if God had not allowed him to experience those years of evil and injustice, none of it would have ever happened. The evil that he experienced was not pointless. What God, what men meant for evil, God intended those very same things for good. Joseph, those are his own words. Even at a time in Joseph's life when he couldn't see it, God was at work. Think about your own life. Maybe in the course of your own life, you've experienced some sort of pain or trauma. And I'm, I'm sure at first you weren't able to see any good reason for it. But perhaps as time passed, you have been able to see some good come about through that pain. And I'm sure it's not enough good to justify all the pain that you've experienced. But if you were able to recognize some good within a few years or a few decades, is it possible that if you had enough time, let's say an eternity's worth of time, could you find the good behind every pain? So just because you don't see a point in some evil doesn't mean that it is pointless. And here's... Here's something else to consider for those who've ever struggled with doubt or or have even thought about leaving the faith because of the problem of evil. Getting rid of God doesn't solve the problem of evil. C.S. Lewis talked about this in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis was raised in the Church of Ireland, but he became 
an atheist at the age of 15, largely because of this issue. And listen to what C.S. Lewis said about his own life story. He said this, and I quote, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? No matter your background or your personal conviction, I think we would all agree that people should not be mistreated or oppressed. Everyone I know, it doesn't matter if they're secular or religious, everyone I know is outraged when vulnerable people get victimized. But have you ever stopped to think why that is? Why do people universally think that victimization and violence are wrong? Because if there is no God, if we're all here by chance, just the result of millions of years of random evolution, and that entire evolutionary process is built upon natural selection, the strong doing violence to the weak, then on what basis would an atheist judge the world to be filled with evil or injustice? Wouldn't these things just be natural? To make the case that the world is filled with evil and injustice, we'd have to assume that, assume that there's some kind of standard above nature, a supernatural standard. You see, if human life just evolved and the strong victimizing the weak was an essential part of the evolutionary process, then we couldn't call it evil. We could call it natural, but we couldn't call it evil. Unless, unless we're basing it on something outside of nature. And that's an argument in the favor in, of God's existence, not against it. So you see, getting rid of God doesn't solve the problem of evil. So in the face of evil and perpetual suffering, why should you, as a believer, why should you keep on believing? What should be the basis for your hope? Well, I want to be clear about what hope is and what hope is not. Hope is not wishful thinking. Like, I hope the Miami Dolphins win the Super Bowl is wishful thinking. And I can say that as a lifelong Dolphins fan. Hope, on the other hand, is not wishful thinking. Hope is confident expectation. And that confidence is rooted in something. Because of who God is, and because of what God has done in the past, we can have confidence about what God will do in the future. Let me say that again. Because of who God is, and because of what God has done in the past, we can have confidence about what He will do in the future. And that confidence about the future is what enables us to persevere in the present. It's what enables us to hold on to hope. So what are the three things that Jesus highlights as the reason for hope? First, 
The first reason that Jesus gives for hope is that God is righteous. God is righteous. Verses 6 and 7 contrast the widow's unjust and unrighteous judge with God, the righteous judge of all the earth. Jesus is saying, if this unrighteous judge is capable of justice, how much more is God? Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10 says, God is not unjust. Acts chapter 10 and verse 34 says that God, unlike this judge, shows no partiality. Isaiah, in Isaiah 61 and verse 8, God says about himself, I love justice and I hate wrong. Psalm 89 and 97 both say that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. The foundation of his rule. God is righteous. He always does what is right. He will always do what is right. The second reason that Jesus gives for hope is that God is loving. Verse 2 says that the the widow's judge didn't care about anyone. And verse 7 contrasts the widow's uncaring judge with God. If a selfish, uncaring judge will listen to the cry of a widow, how much more will God listen to the cries of his chosen ones, his precious ones, his beloved sons and daughters. First John chapter four and verse eight says that God is love. Not just that God is loving. God is love. And if you don't believe it, if it's ever been hard to believe that God is love, just look at the cross. Christianity alone, among all the religions of the world, claims that God became a human being in Jesus Christ. That God, in Jesus Christ, suffered and was crucified. That God, in Jesus Christ, knows firsthand rejection, despair, loneliness, poverty, abuse, imprisonment, death, and pain. God in Jesus Christ, experienced the worst of human suffering. And why did he do it? He did it in order to pay for our sins so that someday he can put an end to evil in the world without putting an end to us. Why does God allow evil and suffering? We may not ever know that answer. But if we look at the cross, we know what the answer isn't. It's not because God doesn't love us. Clearly, he does. First John chapter four, nine and ten says God showed how much he loved us. How? When? By sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. This is love, John writes. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's love. God is loving. He sees your tears. He hears your cries for justice. He cares. Believe it or not, God cares more than you. Because God loves more than you love. 
The third reason that Jesus gives for hope is that God is coming. Verse 8 assures us that God is coming soon. And when he comes, he'll bring justice with him. You see, according to the Bible, when God comes, human beings won't be taken out of this world into heaven. When God comes, heaven will come down and renew the whole world. Amen. Every horrible thing that has ever happened will be repaired in such a way that our joy will be even greater because it once was broken. Dostoevsky said that in the world's finale, something so precious will come to pass that it will justify everything that's ever happened. It'll be like waking up from a nightmare. Have you ever had a really bad dream where you lost someone you loved? And you woke up in a panic, only to discover that it was just a dream. It happened to me not too long ago. And whenever that happens, you know, you wake up at first in a panic. And then reality sets in, you realize it was just a dream. And then, birthed in you in that moment, is a new appreciation for the things that you love. Because you just dreamed that you had lost them. And when Jesus returns and renews the whole world, it will be like waking up from a really bad nightmare. So what's our application this morning? Well, if God is righteous, and if God is loving, and if God is coming to right every wrong, then be hopeful... Be prayerful and be ready. We've talked about hopefulness and prayerfulness. Let me briefly mention readiness. Jesus, I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus ends this parable with a question. It's in verse 8. I tell you, Jesus said, he will give justice, justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When Jesus comes again, will he find faith on earth? Will he find you believing? That's the question. When Jesus comes to bring justice to the world, will you be ready? You know, we've heard a lot of cries for justice over the past few years. Rightfully so. We all want justice, don't we? We want, we just want people to get what they deserve. Isn't that what you want? Don't you just want to get what you deserve? Careful. (laughs) Be very careful. The Bible is very clear about what each one of us deserves from a holy, holy, holy God. And I don't think that any of us actually want that. No, oftentimes we want justice for other people, but we want mercy for ourselves. But the good news is, justice and mercy are both available to you in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ lived the life that you failed to live and died the death that you deserve to die in order to give both justice and Mercy. As the old John Newton hymn says, 
Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. So when the Son of Man comes again to judge the whole world, to give everyone what they deserve, to those he finds believing, he'll give eternal life. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ got what they deserved. So that at the judgment, they could get what he deserved. So what about you? When he comes, Will he find you believing? Let me close with this story. As a child, Winston Churchill attended Harrow. It was a boarding school for boys. He barely passed the entrance exam. And while he was there, he was in the lower third of his class. At that time in his life, he showed very little potential. But after he graduated from Harrow, Churchill went on to the Royal Military Academy and eventually became famous not only as a soldier, but as a statesman. And near the end of his life, Churchill was invited back to that boarding school to address the student body. And he he was introduced to the boys, not only as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, but he was introduced to the boys as one of the greatest orators of all time. And so the boys were there, all prepared to take Plenty of notes. And when Churchill addressed the boys, this is what he said. And I quote, Young gentlemen, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Never, 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 never. And that was his whole speech. One of the greatest orators of all time. I just gave it to you word for word. And then he sat down. And I bet you that none of those boys ever forgot that message for the rest of their lives. And I hope that you never forget this. Beloved, no matter your circumstances, no matter what you have been through in the past, no matter what you're going through right at this very moment, never give up. Never, 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 never. Keep holding on to hope. God is good. God is loving. God is coming to right every wrong. So be hopeful. Be prayerful. Lord, you know our hearts and you know our susceptibleness to hopelessness in the face of evil and suffering and difficulty. And many people in our community are struggling right now. And these are times where we often see the best of humanity. And these are often times where we see the worst of humanity. And you know our faith is weak. And you know that some of us are barely holding on. I pray, Lord, that you, by the power of your spirit, through your word, would lift us up, would encourage our hearts, would strengthen our faith. 
that we might see in Jesus the sure reason to never give up hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to sing our closing hymn. Beloved, receive God's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.